Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. We're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 10 today, and we're going to read from verses 11 through 15. So I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord as we read together Romans 10, 11 through 15. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Emphasis added. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Gracious God, we're all here seeking a word that only you can speak. Be gracious to us as we listen. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who is our example in all things. Amen. About 10 years ago now, uh, a man named Simon Sinek gave a TED Talk entitled The Golden Circle that has now been watched about 40 40 million times. Uh, I think. I think it's maybe one of the top five TED Talks ever watched, ever viewed. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've, you've listened to it. Uh, he explains in his talk that what he wanted to find out, he wanted to find out uh, what makes uh, certain people, what makes certain organizations um, successful. What makes them successful? His hunch was that most people, most organizations know uh, what they do. They focus on what they do or they focus on how they do it. Right? He says that, that pretty much every single person knows what they do. This is easy. You know what you're doing, for the most part. He says even some know how they do what they do. But very few people, very few organizations, know why they do what they do. And according to Simon and uh, the studies that he showed, the science that, that he used for this talk, it's this why belief that shapes everything that we do. It inspires us and it moves us far beyond, far beyond the what and the how of what we do. His point is that people uh, or organizations that uh, really know what they do flourish, while those people and organizations that that only know the what and the how, they, they flounder. He gives a couple of examples. The first example that he, that he uses is a company, right? He uses Apple. This is kind of the prime example of a company whose why drives everything they do, right? Do you know what their mission statement is? It's to think different, right? They think differently about adverbs, okay? Um, they, they think differently about everything they do, and they challenge the status quo in everything they do, right? It just so happens that along the way, they make these beautifully designed products and wonderful, easy-to-use uh, devices, right? But another example that he uses, one that I think we can relate to as the church, is Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, as you know, was a prominent voice during the civil rights era, uh, surely an American prophet calling us all to live much more justly. But in this era, the civil rights era, it was King that stood out, 
There were a lot of civil rights leaders. There were many people giving speeches. There were a, a lot of community organizers working toward the same end, but it was King. It was King who could speak to the why more powerfully than anyone else. It was why millions followed him. It was why thousands showed up to hear him talk. Thousands showed up to, to, to march with him, black or white. King could speak more powerfully to the why. As Simon points out, I think cleverly so, it was King that gave the I have a dream speech, not the I have a plan speech. So what does this have to do with us? As Thomas already alluded to, we, we are also people who live out of our deep whys, right? Knowing the why. And I think that knowing the why makes all the difference, especially when it comes to this practice of sharing the gospel that Paul alludes to here in this passage in Romans. As Thomas pointed out last week, this, this section of Romans that we're in right now, uh, chapters 9 through 11, are, are a really unique section in this letter in which Paul kind of lingers. He lingers on this one central question. And that question is just how big, just how big is this thing that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ? He returns this question again and again, and it drives all of the content of these few chapters. And I want to draw your attention uh, to this, this verse that, that he wrote right before the, the text that we read today. Listen to what he writes. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And I want to draw your attention to two really important words in this text that do a, do a good job summarizing uh, these chapters and how Paul is going to wrestle with this question. But also, they summarize a lot of this letter uh, to the Romans as well. So these two words. The first word is this word end, right? For Christ is the end of the law. The Greek word that Paul uses uh, here is a word that means goal or purpose, not, not termination. We can think about this word end like we, we use it in one of our catechisms. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith begins with the question, what is the chief end of humanity? And the answer to which is to glorify and enjoy God forever. So Paul isn't saying that Christ cancels the law, but that Christ was actually the end, the goal or purpose toward which the law was headed all along. In other words, Christ shows the very purpose of the law, which was to unite human beings to God. Which brings us to the second word. Notice that what Paul says is that this relationship with God is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. One of the most important words in Romans, but often uh, is overlooked. It's a very short word, but Paul uses it over and over again. It's this Greek word, pos. It's just three short letters. But this word is translated as all, or everyone. Paul uses it three times in the five verses that we read just this minute, just this uh, morning, a minute ago. And so why does, this, why does this matter? Why does this short Greek word matter? Well, for Paul, he's coming to terms, right, with the fact that this thing that God is up to is no longer just Israel's story only, right? It's no longer just Israel's story, but now it's the story of the whole world, including you and including me. And this is why Paul can say, as he does in the verses that we just read, that no one who believes in Christ 
will be put to shame. No one who believes in Christ will be put to shame. For there is no distinction now between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. Right? There's that word. And is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is Paul's why. This is Paul's why. In Christ, this generous God, that's what he refers to him as, this generous God is saving the world, not just the people of Israel, but everyone and everything. And that's why Paul can't stop traveling all over to tell people about it. And once Paul uh, knows his why, he establishes his why, he, he uses all kinds of means, all kinds of what's and how's to accomplish it. Right? He preaches. He writes. He mentors. He befriends. He suffers. All for the sake. All for the sake of telling other people this news. Now, the church word for this practice of sharing this good news is evangelism. Right? I'm noticing some people who are uncomfortable in their seats. It's fine. Okay? If we're being honest, many of us would admit that evangelism is a practice that makes us slightly uncomfortable. Maybe it's because we're, we're not really sure what to say, how to do it. How do you talk about your faith with someone else? Or maybe it's because we've had some really bad examples of what evangelism truly really look like. And I, I totally get that. Growing up, I thought that evangelism only counted if it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone, usually a stranger, that ended in their conversion, right? Which is a pretty high bar uh, for the practice. So it's like, I'm just not gonna do that because um, I'm not gonna be very good at it. But in college, uh, I was uh, part of an organization that uh, decided to go on an evangelistic experience. Um, and uh, our plan was that we were gonna go to another college campus because you, you're gonna wanna do this on a different campus, <laughs> apparently. Uh, so our strategy was to, uh, to go to this campus and to, um, to, to, to tell the students that we encountered there that we were conducting a survey. And we were, we were conducting the survey on like what college students believed uh, about the afterlife, life after death. And our, our plan was, was pretty straightforward. Uh, this wasn't complicated. We were going to interview these students. We we're going to ask them, you know, what, what do you think happens to you when, you when you die? And then after they told us their answer, you know, we thought, you know, now will be the opportunity for us to, to really share what we think. I think it looked a lot better, like, on paper <laughs> than in practice, because um, it was a terrible strategy, absolutely terrible strategy, N not least of all because it was completely dishonest, right? And this became clear to me when one of the students I was interviewing responding, responded with a question of his own. Right? I, went through, I went through my pitch with him, you know, we're, we're conducting the survey to see what college students really think about the afterlife and would you be willing to participate? And he nodded, yeah, okay, you know, you got me. Um, and so I asked him the question, well, what do you think happens, will happen to you when you die? And he looked at me and he kind of paused. And then he asked me, well, what are you going to do with the data from this survey that you're conducting? That wasn't part of the training, <laughs> right? So in my head, I'm thinking, like, listen, dude, like, I, I'm not, we're not collecting any data. 
Like, I'm not even writing any of this down. Like, you can see this, this whole thing is a trick uh, to just get you to, to talk to me about Jesus. That's a super embarrassing uh, story. But I learned two really important lessons that day. The first lesson I learned is um, if in the, uh, in the event, right, in the, uh, in the course of telling someone the good news about Jesus, if you have to trick them into talking with you, you're doing it wrong. You're just doing it wrong. Like, don't do that. You don't have to do that. But secondly, what I learned, I think far more importantly, secondly, what I realized that day is I had no idea why someone should even listen to me in the first place talk to them about Jesus. No idea why. I knew what I was doing. I knew how I was <laughs> going about it. I had no idea why I was even on that quad that day. It's an embarrassing story. Maybe not quite as embarrassing as the pastor who condemned his son's hamster. If you didn't get that, you're going to have to listen to last week's podcast. Um, but I completely understand if you leave here judging me uh, today for that. But in my defense, after this interaction, I completely, I completely sat out the experience for the rest of the day. I, I couldn't recover from that question. But I tell you this story, right? I tell you this very simple story so that you will understand that I have my own baggage with evangelism. I have my own discomfort with it. I have my own failures with it. And it's taken me a long time to relearn what evangelism is really all about. And in the process, right, of me relearning this, uh, what this practice is all about, I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is that before we can join Paul in proclaiming this good news, before we can even begin to think that, that uh, we can become the beautiful feet that bring good news, we have to first know what's at stake in the world and in our own lives. We need to know why this thing that God has done in Jesus Christ actually matters to our real lives, to our real lived experience. And I think that when we know the why, I think that when we know the why, that we, like Paul, will realize just how big this thing really is that God has done in Jesus. And I think once we realize this, that evangelism becomes a natural, becomes a, a joyful part of our lives. There's a quote that's often attributed to uh, St. Francis of Assisi, and it goes something like this. He says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful idea, and I think it's a wonderful theology, and it highlights, I think, how broad the practice of evangelism can really be, right? Sometimes the best way to proclaim the love of God in Christ is not through talking, but through our actions. In every act of, of compassion, right? In every work of art that celebrates the good and the true. In every fair and just practice of business and trade. In every act of solidarity with the poor and with the outcast. In every simple and ordinary action, interaction with our children. In every protest of unjust policy In all of these actions, right, there's an opportunity for us to announce to the world the good news of God's love to us in Jesus Christ. An opportunity for us to announce, as Paul does, that God is saving the world. That God is saving sinners like you and like me. And I think that each of these practices, 
can be counted among the practices of evangelism. And each of these practices, along with sharing our faith verbally, I think they emanate from a deep faith that in Christ, God really is saving the world. And the difference that knowing your why can make can leave a huge impact, far beyond maybe anything you even intended. One of the best examples of someone who knew the why of evangelism is a, name, is a man named Jim Rayburn. If you don't know the name, you certainly have probably heard of the organization that he founded about 75 years ago called Young Life. Rayburn was driven by a passion to share the good news of Christ's liberating and redeeming love to high school students, to just share it with them. This was so unique about, uh, about Young Life at the time. Just wanted to share this message with high school students. This is uh, uh, illustrated well in this talk that Rayburn gave in the late 50s. At a Young Life staff conference in 1957, he taught uh, on Paul's letter to the Corinthians in which Paul writes that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, not counting their sins against them. And in this talk, Rayburn reflected for a few moments on this concept of reconciliation. What does that really mean? That it was an event that God had already accomplished in Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a possibility. It was a new reality. And then he, he, his voice inflect, inflects, if you listen to the talk, his voice inflects and he says, I wonder what they, and he's talking about high school students, I wonder what they would do if they knew it. What I find most compelling about Rayburn's understanding of evangelism is that for Rayburn, evangelism is an announcement more than it is an invitation. This announcement of what God has already accomplished for us in Jesus Christ shaped everything about young life from then and until now. Some of you likely had your lives changed by this organization, by someone who had a vision of the why for sharing this good news. I know that my wife's life was shaped by it. And if you know anything about young life, you know anything about it, you know that for the past, most of the last century, Right? They have been sharing this good news. They have been announcing this good news. And in the process, transforming the lives of young people all across the world. I wonder what they would do if they knew it. Only someone who knows why they are sharing the gospel with others can make that statement. Right? Because they are confident that the good news of Jesus Christ will undoubtedly change any life that hears it and understands it. Whether or not evangelism, just hearing the word, makes us uncomfortable, the truth is that we're all here this morning. We're all here this morning because someone shared this news with us. It's not something you just stumble upon. Someone shares it with you. You think about that. Think about the person in your own life who shared this news with you. Maybe it was a family member, a parent. Maybe it was a, a teacher, a coach, a mentor. Maybe it was a, a, a preacher. Maybe it was a college student fumbling through a practice of evangelism years ago. Maybe it was a friend. The point that Paul makes here is that this story is mediated. It's mediated. It has to be told. 
He says that in order to hear this good news and trust the God behind it, someone has to be willing to share it. Someone shared it with you. Now it's your turn. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.